Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. Once again, I'm your host, John Landis. Very happy to be so. Uh, tonight, we're going to bring you another in a series of interviews that we are um, pulling into the show during that during the uh, uh, our COVID respite. And um, hopefully you guys are safe. Uh, our, uh, our thoughts are with you all um, and, uh, and, of course, with each other. And uh, tonight, the interview is with uh, Tom Scott. It was done by Dave Schroeder again, of the NYU Steinhardt School, the head of that school. Uh, and Tom is, is one, of the, one of the fine, well-known jazz musicians uh, in the world, has had a long career, um, been involved in something like 500 projects over time. Uh, this is going to be uh, part one of a two-part interview. Uh, the interview was actually done by Dave Schroeder uh, back in November 2015, I believe. Um, we had the good fortune of recording Tom Scott, and he played with uh, Combo Nuvo, which is um, the band that, uh, that Dave Schroeder has put together from uh, friends at NYU. Um, and so some of the recording here may be, I think, from that night, which was uh, back in the summer of 2019, not that long ago. Wonderful night at the Southampton Arts Center. We thank those at the Southampton Arts Center to have made that possible. So let's listen to part one of this interview with uh, Tom Scott. We'll tell you a little bit more about him in a bit. I pay for that. Every day. Yeah, really. Tom, it's great having you here in New York City. Thank you, Dave. And, and I want to continue from our last conversation and really fill in some of the gaps that we were talking about. Right. Uh, but you're going to be our, our, our window into uh, music of the 60s and 70s and 80s, I think, tonight. Because your career has been so diverse with uh, starting off as maybe a bebop musician. Right. And then finding uh, a career opportunity in uh, fusion music and pop music. Correct. So probably when you were in your 60s, I mean 1960s, um, you were thinking about pursuing a, a career as a jazzer, as a, as uh, a swing. It's absolutely true. My, you know, growing up in my teen years, of course, um, I, I've had original recordings of, you know, the Miles Davis Quintet with with John Coltrane, the Miles Davis and Gil Evans, you know, Cannibal Adderley Quintet. These these were like, I worshipped these records. Jerry Mulligan and Stan Getz, some of the best records those guys ever made were right in that period from, you know, 57 to 63, 4, when I was in uh, uh, middle school and, and high school. And I just, I, I, I loved them and I wore them out and I tried to play, you know, in the style of all those guys. Well, from that early age, did you consider another career choice, or was were you in, attached to music that early? You know, when I went to, of course, uh, my my college education was interrupted permanently, unfortunately, by uh, the Vietnam War. Um, you know, the, in 1966, when I graduated high school, the Vietnam War was at its height, and they had not instituted that that ping pong ball system, you know, and pick the numbers, you know, and uh, so everybody uh, my age who wasn't either, uh, had a full college load or, um, you know, had a medical disability of some kind or was nut, could prove that they were nuts, uh, some attempted to do that successfully, friends of mine, uh, you would be drafted immediately and, and sent to Vietnam. So I got very lucky. There was a wonderful uh, Air National Guard band based out of Van Nuys, California, in San Fernando Valley. And all the best musicians were clamoring to get in there, and they came, actually they came after me. 
So I got to um, do that and, and fulfill my, my six-year uh, obligation in the service by going to meetings once a month, which was basically a band. I mean, we were the PR wing of the Air Force at that time. So in doing that, um, I got to, uh, uh, you know, explore uh, music, edu uh, music education at, uh, at USC, where I went for a semester, but I was sorely disappointed in the, in the respect that, and I, I know things have changed, I, I assume they've changed, but when I uh, took the placement test at USC, uh, I was, I aced all the composing and arranging part because I, you know, I'd been doing that at home, taking off arrangements of Basie and Gil Evans' you know, that kind of thing. But I was poor in terms of music history and it's, in terms of understanding the periods and the styles. And they said to me, well, you know, you're very good in this area, but you'll have to start at, you know, the first, the beginning, the 101. So I said, that's fine. And then I, and then I, <laughs> I had the, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say balls, but whatever, to, to say to them, look, um, I'd like to know if I can uh, have time uh, regularly to maybe have my own ensemble of some kind or write original material. And, and the guy looked at me and said, <laughs> you know, maybe when you're like a, a senior or graduate student. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm doing that on my own already. I, I kind of resent that you're so... Uh, you know, kind of putting me down for even suggesting that. And uh, as a result, I, I kind of started off on my own and quit school <laughs> uh, after, my, after I served my basic training. Then, you asked about a second career, that's what this is leading up to. I, I decided, uh, I came back from my basic training during about June. I decided, okay, I'll get a degree in something else. And I, th I thought maybe psychology, I don't know, have something to fall back on, as we used to say. I don't know if they still say that. Get a degree that you can something fall back on if the music thing doesn't work out. I attended UCLA, I enrolled, attended UCLA for one day. Started walking around that campus, going to classes I really didn't care about. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to do this. I'll, I'll make or break it in music to hell with it. And that's exactly what I did. So. The question is, how did you do that? So, how did you start doing it? Right. Well, I, I, you know, I was very fortunate that you know my father and mother, they, they both met when they worked at NBC Radio in the 40s. They were both very musical. My father wrote music for television, a lot of television in the 1950s and 60s, Dragnet, Lassie episodes of Twilight Zone, famous episodes of the black and white Twilight Zone. And, uh, and such, and he was a very respected composer arranger. So I was in that, kind of in that world to begin with. My teachers, I had three or four um, woodwind teachers during, the, during my teen, uh, pre-teen and teen years, and they were all wonderful, the top studio musicians of that time. So that kind of got me, you know, the bug bit me, of course. And uh, I started going to a jazz club, and, um, and there was a club called Dante's in North Hollywood. And that's where I met uh, some great players. Howard Roberts, the guitar player. D uh, Dave Rusin, uh, composer and keyboard player. Um, you know, John Guerin, Chuck DeMonaco, guys who became, uh, you know, stalwarts in, in This the, is like mid-60s? This is 67, mm -hmm. right in there, right. And, uh, and then I did the one thing that really set my career off, which was I, uh, Oliver Nelson came to Los Angeles. I loved Oliver Nelson's records. Adored those great voicings he had. Oh man! And uh, 
So he came to L.A. and had a band that was going to make a, a uh, do a week gig at um, at a club called Marty's on the Hill. And at the end of that week, Bob Thiel, the founder of Impulse Records, Coltrane, Eric Dolphy, all these great, you know, monumental jazz records and great covers. Impulse always had great album covers. You know, album covers, man, I miss them greatly. Mm. I understand there's a kind of a new movement to to bring back records, vinyl, but uh, in any case. Um, so I wasn't part of the original band, but lo and behold, the tenor player, uh, a guy named Bill Green, I don't know, got commitment, got sick something, and I got the call to come in and sub for this on the second night. And I guess Oliver liked me because he hired me right then and, right mm -hmm. then and there. And I ended up making an, a record with the big Oliver Nelson Live in Los Angeles album, which is still around somewhere. And uh, did this extended solo on Milestones with a uh, guy named Frank Strozier, mm -hmm. a wonderful saxophone player. That uh, You can hear that on YouTube, in fact. Yes, I'm sure you can. And uh, <laughs> that really kind of propelled the, the word, oh, there's this kid, you know? And uh, <laughs> you know the story of Lana Turner at Schwab's drugstore where apparently she was sitting there eating and some film agent comes up and says, hey, uh, hey, young lady, you want to be a movie star or whatever? Well, that's kind of what happened to me. Because at the end of this engagement, once we recorded the record, at the end of the Sunday night, which ended the gig, I'm packing up. Bob Thiel walks up to me and says, hey, kid, you want to make a record for Impulse? <laughs> Why, yes, Mr. Thiel, I'd love to. <laughs> so, all right, we're going to record you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do something for you. So were you uh, close to him? Close to Bob. Yeah. Well, I, got, I became close to him. I loved him. He would, you know, this is the era of the, of the like, uh, the Erdogans and uh, and uh, Jerry Wexler and, and some of these great, you know, producers who were passionate about the guys who founded Blue Note. I, you know, mm -hmm. those guys. I can't remember their name, but anyway, there were a bunch of people who really um, were in the record business, but they cared about the music first. Mm -hmm. They wanted to. They wanted to, you know, memorialize some of these great jazz musicians. So, Jesus, you're asking me to be a part of that? Are you kidding? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm thrilled. Well, did Thiel ever talk about uh, his years with Coltrane and what it meant when Coltrane passed? He did. He did. Of course, and I, I, I was very anxious to know. And he said, you know, Coltrane was a good kind of quiet guy. When we did, you know, the, like I'm sort of, I, the, the, you know, the more adventurous, uh, you know, once we went past a Love Supreme and into the kind of Albert Eiler sort of, uh, whatever you call that, mm -hmm. I, I sort of lost it. But the one, the ones that I loved. My favorite one was the one called Balance. And, and I asked Bob Thiel about that, and he said that we had a bunch of tunes, lead sheets, and we just, you know, we put, we put one on McCoy's and, you know, on the jets of all the players, uh, the McCoy and I guess it was Jimmy Garrison and Elvin, I think. And uh, he said, look, uh, play the melody through once, then play, a, you know, a solo that's not too far from the melody, and then play the melody out. And that was the tune, that was the record Balance. And, you know, he, Coltrane just said, okay, and just did it. You know, Coltrane did have a, you know, we think of him as this jazz, you know, practically god. He really was an incredibly influential musician, you know, as much as Bird, I think, for that period. But he also was, had been an R&B guy, you know. I think I heard that in, in Philly or wherever he was, 
as an early uh, player that he did that bar walking thing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So he had an incredibly rounded uh, background. Well, he played with guys like Earl Boston. That's uh, right, yeah. that sort of thing. So the guy we think of, that, that innovative guy, evolved from a guy with a tremendous amount of background in all styles of music, which I, to this day I think is a incredibly important. You gotta lay the foundation. You know? mm -hmm. So what did he say about uh, Coltrane's death? He, uh, he, he, he did, I tell you what, he didn't say too much about it because I, I could tell that it was very emotional for him. He loved Coltrane, you know, as a person, I'm sure. And it was very, very deeply uh, saddened by his death, as, as, as we all were at the time. It was, seemed like he was so young, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, I know that, that he, he felt really bad about it and, uh, and regretted it terribly. So did he say anything to you about I'm looking for new sax players to produce and become something. Well, uh, I tell you what, uh, <laughs> the first album I made for him was uh, was not exactly uh, Love Supreme. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, his concept for me, as as a, uh, let's see, how old was I then? Nineteen or twenty, maybe. His idea for me was that he was going to make me kind of a pop guy, mm -hmm. and I would do covers of of the current, you know, hits of that era. Um, with an all LA kind of studio, kind of white, <laughs> white bread. Was this, was this produced in LA or New York? Yeah, yeah, it was LA. This was okay. LA, and so I just came to the studio and played parts. The arrangements had been done by other people, great, great pop arrangers of that era, um, and included in my as sideman was among other people Glenn Campbell, who later became a huge country western star with his own variety show, mm -hmm. but at that time. He was a uh, a rhythm studio guitarist for hire, with a with a station wagon that said gl glitter on the side. Glenn Campbell, you know, <laughs> he was uh, he was trying hard to make it in those days, and he he was a great player, great great uh, picker and guitar player, and uh, some of the other musicians we had. Uh, Jim Gordon played drums, who later joined Derek and the Dominoes with Eric Clapton. And not too long after that, unfortunately, murdered his mother and has been in an insane asylum ever since, basically. But um, uh, Carol Kay, the bass player, mm -hmm. played with the Beach Boys and a bunch so of So a lot of the Wrecking Crew? You, you wrecking know? Crew people, that's right, a lot of them. Mike Melvoin, anyway, great people of that era. But it was really a pop record. I mean, we did uh, Mellow Yellow, you know, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, you know, not exactly, you know, Giant Steps.
You're listening to WLIW-FM 88.3, Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. And we're listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour in an interview that took place in November 2015 of the one and only Tom Scott. But you know what? I think uh, at that time period, record producers were open to all these things. It's like you're talking about Bob Thiel. He also wrote the tune, What a Wonderful World. That's right. Well, he was married to Teresa Brewer, right. who put another nickel in the, nick in the Nickelodeon, you know, something we would consider rather corny at the time. But, you know, but he did it all. He, did, he was great. He, and, and, you know, that's what I, that was a very important lesson to me. Once I got out of my, realized there was more great music than just the kind of narrow field that I was into, the Miles Coltrane, Cannibal, Triumvirate and then other you know things in that vein, um, and that was that was tremendously kind of mind you know mind bending for me to, to have that revelation and go you know there because uh, through Glenn, Glenn Campbell who was later I worked on his television show for about half a year Marty Page great arranger was mm-hmm. the band, was the arranger for that show the MD the music director and uh, I I met some great country pickers, my God, Glenn, who were in Glenn Campbell's road band, there was a banjo player, Larry something, man, he was awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was really, I'd like, yeah, okay, there's more to jazz than, I mean, there's more to music than just jazz. Well, in New York at the same time, we had people like Tio Macero, who was a friend of our program, and while he was producing Miles Davis and Nathonius Monk and Dave Brubeck, he was also producing Johnny Mathis right. and Simon Garfunkel. Right, 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 right. So and it was all good. You know, those were days, you know, there's nothing like this now because radio has been so taken over by, you know, the corporate world and kind of controlled and playlists that are very restrictive. But there used to be shows, you know, they called it underground radio in those days, FM guys who would come on and play. A Miles Davis track, and it didn't. And it didn't have to be three and a half minutes, you know, like the like the, the hit radio format. God, if it's over three and a half minutes, we won't play it. But you know, Jimi Hendrix track, no matter how long. Then Miles, then Simon Garfunkel, Janis Joplin. I mean, a real blend of stuff, and then some blues guys. And it was great. It was just great to have that kind of diversity. You know, you don't have that anymore. There's a blues channel and a, this channel and a, that channel. So now, was it uh, Impulse and Bob Thiel that put you on the map? I would say, well, that was one thing, and then the other thing, because of that record, that first record I did uh, for uh, Bob, with this group of, you know, as you say, the Wrecking Crew and other very busy studio musicians, there started a buzz about me with them. So um, I, I began to get a call from uh, calls from a few of the contract, the musicians' contractors who were active in that, at that time. There was a guy named Bobby Helfer who was contractor for Universal Studios. And I started working on, the Universal at that time was very dominant in the world of um, uh, primetime drama. You know, there were, I'm talking about shows like Columbo and uh, there was a show called The Bold Ones, a whole b- a bunch of weekly dramas. In addition to, they would do, mo- they had pioneered this thing called Movies of the Week, which is, you know, they announced, it's just, they take it for granted. But, it's a style, but but in those days it was kind of a new deal. The idea of a two-hour made-for-television movie, and of course all these things required live music composed, you know, specifically for those shows. So there was a whole bunch of us that started working regularly. Uh, you know, I, I, geez, in those days there must have been probably 
close to 100 guys and, and ladies who worked regularly just in television, just in the orchestras right, doing music for television. Mm. Now, and a few movies here and there. But you, in those days, you could make a really, really good living. I mean, you know, some of them drove Mercedes and lived in, you know, very, very large, comfortable houses. Uh, so, so that started to happen, and then I became known to that world. And, uh, Did and, you say and you're an honorary Wrecking Crew member? I, I am. Well, if you watch the movie, the Wrecking Crew, at the end credits, they list all the people who oh. were part of it, and I'm on there. So okay. I, guess, I guess, yes, I am. Now, the interesting thing that separates you from most jazz musicians, uh, instrumental musicians, is your connection to the pop world. Like, uh, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, you know people, you were close to people like, uh, all the Beatles, starting well, three of three Harrison, of the four, three yes. of the four, and uh, and you hung out with these people. I did. And you hung out with people like, uh, um, well, you were on a lot of records like Carol King, yes, but with John Belushi, yes, and with Jocko, and yes, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that you could talk about. It's like, yes, I I met these people through yes. working within that industry. Within yes. TV, film, and in the celebrity that you got from touring, when right. we when I interviewed you last, I had brought up the name Rossan Roland Kirk, <laughs> that was a fan that you were a fan of. But yes. you said, in fact, you were playing at Ronnie Scott's in London, and Rossan was opening for you. That's right, and I kind of felt bad about that because I so revered him and thought that he he deserved better than open for me. <laughs> <laughs> But let's let's just have you ruminate about what what, what was that like? I mean, you're crossing well, over. Yeah. Was, was it a big party time? Well, well, there were there were a bit too many nasty drugs going on. I, yeah. I will say that it was so it was very very common at that time. Unfortunately, you know, thank God I got through it all. But and I think the main reason was because the music was always the most important thing to me. I I you know I never. I never let a situation get out of control, you know, uh, if the music had to be, you know, taken care of. And again, I was, I started to write music, as write dramatic music for television as well. And you know, you, you, you can't, you've got to take it very seriously or you're out of there. You know, there's a lot, it's a very competitive field, but uh, I did quite well at that. And uh, well, you, I mean, let's take a name, Carol King, you said. Carol King remains to this day one of the nicest, sweetest, she lights up a room every now as she always did every time and she's just a delight and still sings and plays great and has still has passion for her music you know just I can't say enough good things about mm -hmm. her Joni Mitchell incredibly talented and not only a I mean a lyricist a guitarist pianist auto harp she made great tunes with that thing um, lyrics all this talent much more introverted type. Not, not, not the person I could say I was a close friend of hers, even though I toured with her for almost a year. Mm. But we, I can't say we were close friends. I, I didn't offend me, it was okay, uh, because I admired her, her talent so much. And I'll tell you, in at least, I don't know how many, we were, I were touring from January of 74 to about September or October, culminating in a show at Wembley Stadium for 100,000 people in, London, right. in England. Uh, but I, and the show was the LA, my band, the LA Express, would open and do a 35 minute set. And then there'd be a short break, and Joni would come on by herself 
and do like, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes or so by herself. And then we'd come on and finish because we had just done this record called Court and Spark where we accompanied her. So we did songs from that to finish. In 75 shows or whatever we did that during that period, I never heard her once play a wrong note, screw up a lyric, or sing a wrong note, ever. Mm. She was perfect. Now, you know, I mean, I, I, people do screw up from time to time, and it's not, if they're real pros, it's doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. But her tunes were so, the poetry was so complex, and you know, and, and she, uh, by the way, she had no, she played these wonderful chords. You really had jazz, the ears of a jazz musician, no idea what the chords were <laughs> in terms of their name. Mm. She just laid her fingers down, and I like, I like the way that sounds. And she learned it and could, you know, recite all those tunes perfectly uh, without ever learning the name of like D minor seven. <laughs> uh, now here's another name, George Harrison. You mentioned the Beatles. I was closest to George. And it didn't happen because of any connection I had with popular pop music or jazz, of course. Uh, it happened through my connection with Indian music, and by that I mean East India. Uh, when I was in the 11th grade, I, I took a class in the summer with a guy named Don Ellis, who was a uh, rather uh, innovative uh, jazz trumpet player. Uh, he played, in fact, he played a four-valve trumpet, um, <laughs> and the fourth valve got quarter did quarter tones. So there's an old tune called "The Midnight Sun." He played it like they went. He kept using that fourth fourth valve. So it went da 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 so this guy comes, this Indian man, a wonderful musician, comes to teach on the ethnomusicology department at UCLA. He forms a band with Don Ellis called the Hindustani Jazz Sextet. And they started doing something which, except for Dave Brubeck and Take Five, in terms of popularity of, of, of jazz, there was n virtually nothing going on in, in terms of odd times and jazz. So that's what they were doing. And it was really fascinating to me. And I got so into it that I, I uh, approached this guy Har Harau, and while it was still in high school, took about a year of weekly private lessons with him on the tabla, because mm -hmm. the rhythm thing is what I thought. Man, I can use this, and I can, uh, you know, so put me in another zone. So I did that, and um, lo and behold, at the right at that about that time, that's when the Beatles and George Harrison, in particular. Uh, found a tremendous kinship with Indian music and it gave him a kind of inner peace. He told me later that being a Beatle, from, from his point of view, was you know, not what you'd think, not just all fun and games. It was a great deal of, of pressure. And he said when we toured America, it seemed to them, the four of them, like when every time they landed in a city, it was an excuse for the town to go nuts. And we just wanted to hide. <laughs> <laughs> he said, we hid in the hotel bathroom as much as possible until showtime. I mean, it was not, a, it was not fun for that reason. Because, you know, people were, wanted a piece of them, they, you know, the hair or anything. They, anything they could close, they, they, they would steal everything they, they had if they could. So, Indian music offered a certain serenity to George that he really appealed to him. And then he, heard, he discovered Ravi Shankar, who, of mm -hmm. course, 
was the, was he's just he has he's been uh, not with us for a very short. He's been uh, you know, he just died at, at eighty something. Mm -hmm. Wonderful guy. Oh God, was he fun. Anyway, George Harrison of the Beatles goes to India to study sitar with Ravi Shankar. This is huge news in the pop music business. And uh, George told me that even Paul McCartney, like the other Beatles came and they, they went with this guy, the Maharishi, who did uh, Transcendental Meditation, but the music part was Ravi Shankar teaching George. But uh, Paul was apparently uh, convinced that George, uh, that Ravi had shared some, some you know, secret of creation or something with George and, uh, that uh, Ravi had shared this, and he just wanted to know. So what, did, what did Ravi tell you? What did you know? And George used to. He, George didn't. He had his problems, issues with Paul McCartney. Hmm. He felt that he treated him kind of like a, you know, stepchild of the, you know. Well, you, you, and you know, George wrote "Here Comes the Sun" and and uh, by while my guitar gently weeps. I mean, some some of the most lasting something in the way she, you know. Uh, tremendously iconic pop songs, and yet Paul and John, he, lo he loved John a lot, and John wasn't like this so much, but the McCartney-Lennon uh, songwriting team did most of the tunes on the Beatles records, and then Paul would go, okay, well, we've got a track left over here, you know, George, we'll do one of yours. So, you know, he wasn't crazy about that, so, and he, he loved the idea that Paul had thought that, that that George had gotten some sort of cosmic revelation <laughs> from his Indian friends that he wouldn't share. You know, says, I love that. I got a big kick out of that. Uh, and anyway, so as a result of this Beatles Indian music connection, there was this interest in Ravi Shankar and his music. Ravi Shankar came to the United States, played at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and you know. It was a big deal, a big deal. So, uh, now well, this must have been about 68 by this time. I was just 20, and, and I don't know whether I was at USC or where I was at the time, but I get this call. And I, the, the, it's a movie producer that I'd sort of known through, he was a jazz fan too, so I sort of happened to him. He says, look, um, Ravi Shankar is coming to Los Angeles to write the score for a film uh, called Charlie. It was called Charlie with Cliff Robertson based on a famous short story called mm -hmm. Flowers for Algernon. And uh, Ravi has said that in fact instead of using a conventional you know orchestra, symphony orchestra uh, um, that you normally use on you know for a dramatic movie, he wanted to do it with a small group of uh, Western musicians you know, Los Angeles guys who had some knowledge, some understanding of Indian music, and there were a few of us. The guy who played on the Tonight Show, Ed Shaughnessy, the drummer, and a guy named Emil Richards, a great percussionist. Larry, there was a few guys who, who knew something about Indian music. So my name got on that list, and uh, uh, he says, you know, would you be interested in playing with Ravi Shankar? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, let me think. I'll get back to you. No, I didn't. I said, of course I would. I'll be there in a heartbeat. So I spent about a week or two doing this movie score with him. And he was, Robbie was sensational. He was a great guy, very well educated in Western things. I mean, he was a real hip guy in, in, as an Indian man who you'd think of as kind of a classical Indian guy. You'd think of as all serious. He loved to joke around and, and he knew telev pop television, pop culture. Amazing. So what was that music like? Was it Indian in nature? The, the score? Yeah. It was kind of, yes, it had that vibe because he had some uh, people, uh, 
don't know whether he, had a, whether he played. I'm sure he played some sitar on it too. He had his tuba player Ala Raka. Oh God, was he good, hmm. man? Those two were awesome. If you ever get a chance, you know, to listen to Ravi Shankar and Ala Raka together on record, there's a lot of records. I'm still around, or probably you two. Uh, awesome. And so it had this kind of. It, it, it was very unconventional. Let's put it that way. There were two flutes. Me, Bud Shank, and uh, Gene Cipriano, a wonderful studio player. The three of us were the wood, with a woodwind section, and then a couple of French horns, and then percussion, I think. Small, you know, like, a, I don't know, 12 people maybe. So, now, moving on. <laughs> so I did that. So now, uh, in about 1970, or I suppose, that's when the Beatles break up. This was, again, huge news. Huge, huge, huge. Mm. Now, George Harrison, it turns out, uh, still had to do, a bit because of his obligation to Capitol Records, even though the Beatles were not together, he still was personally obligated to do another, I believe, three records, deliver three records, because that was the deal he had with Capitol. And he really detested them. He felt that Capitol had really, well, they'd, he'd, they'd been signed to, uh, the Beatles had been signed to like a slave, what would be considered a slave contract, considered the, considering the enormous amount of money that they generated for Capitol. So he, in those were days, you know, nowadays that like a contract renegotiation would happen and, you know, every, every Beatles album that was put out, they would renegotiate. That's the way now. But then uh, it just wasn't done so much. So they suffered under this, under this uh, resentment uh, that capital had let them down. So George was do, anxious to do anything he could to kind of get out from under capital's umbrella. So the one thing he could do, he couldn't be an artist, of course, because he was signed to Capitol, but he could be a producer. And so he founded a record company called Dark Horse Records. Their, their, their offices was, were based uh, at the A&M lot, which is the old Charlie Chaplin movie studio in the 20s, um, which had been converted to a, uh, the A&M Records lot. They had recording studios, famous recording studios. Uh, I used to work there a lot. You'd walk in that place and uh, you'd see well, I, I met, that's where I met Jocko Pastorius. He was working with Joni, uh, uh, Billy Preston, and the Carpenters, and Captain and Tennille, and, and John Lennon, and Phil Spector. Phil Spector, what a nut. Anyway, um, George established this kind of subsidiary record company, Dark Horse. And the first record that he produced was called Ravi Shankar Family and Friends. And I was one of the friends. So I get the call. Can you do a recording session for a week with Ravi Shankar, produced by George Harrison? You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> sure. So I walk in, and he's already here, George has already heard about me. I mean, I saw him in the booth, and here's the, oh God, it's a Beatle. You know, the Beatles had, I don't know, they, there was this reverence for them. They were far more than just a rock, a rock band. They were cultural icons, which, the likes of which I can't really think of anything now the comparison them, you know, uh, it was it was off the charts. Their their the feelings we had for the Beatles and, and how they kind of revolutionized pop music. Uh, so George walks out of the booth and comes right up to me and says, "Are you you're the guy that studied with Hari Rao, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Do you like listening to Indian music?" You know, he says, "I I have trouble finding friends that, that enjoy listening to Indian music." I said, "Yeah, I love it." He says, "Come with me." <laughs> At that point, I kind of became George Harrison's, you know, sidekick for off and on for about three years. Wow. And I went to I went to his house, uh, Friar Park, which was actually a huge, huge estate with a castle, 
um, and a recording studio, of course. I lived there with him for weeks and months Is at that a time. England. That's in England. Yeah. A place called Henley on Thames, uh, about 45 minutes outside of London. And he was just a delight, uh, delightful guy. Loved him to death. Funny and self-effacing. He, I thought he was a great guitar player because how many people? Jock was one, but he, George was another guy. He had that slide guitar style that he played, mm -hmm. and in two notes, you know who it is. I mean, let's face it, there are strings stretched across a piece of wood. Come on, how, how individual can you sound? Well, the answer is, uh, with talent <laughs> and, and ability, uh, you can do quite a bit. And so, George had a wonderful sound, but he was very uh, reluctant to think of himself as a great guitar player. And I, I remember saying to him, George, you've got to be kidding me, man. You're, you're wonderful. I love your sound and everything. You know, can you imagine, like, trying to, you know, encourage a, a, a guy of that of that tremendous celebrity that he's as good as <laughs> you think he is, and he doesn't. That's funny. Did you have anything to do with the Bangladesh concert? That was I met him just after that. Ah. Just after that, right? I did have to. I did a tour with George's. Did a, George did a tour of um, the United States and a couple of cities in Canada at the end of 1974. So I just finished the Joni thing, and then I went on straight on. It was quite a year um, to, uh, to to the George Harrison tour. Which unfortunately was didn't go well because George didn't have the board. You know, he never had to like lead and be the primary vocalist for an hour and a half show. He'd never done that before. He was always, you know, the Beatles. He was like the rhythm guitarist and some backup vocals, but he didn't sing very much. Mm -hmm. So he 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 and he he didn't know enough to vocally maybe take lessons and prepare and, and be have enough stamina. So he. He had some vocal problems and he took a lot of heat for it, but, but he was a great guy and we loved him dearly. Mm. Please keep with us and keep listening to WLIW 88.3 FM, Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. And this is the Jam Session Radio Hour. Uh, we're very happy to be able to bring it to you. And tonight, the interview of Tom Scott done by Dave Schroeder of the NYU Steinhardt School. So after this, Tom Scott starts to become a leader. I do. Well, I'd started, you know, I had bands in the past. And, you know, I've always said, I, in, in, I started in my teenage years, well, actually there was a competition uh, when I was in high school called the Hollywood Bowl Battle of the Bands, sponsored by the LA De Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks. And out of that competition came the Carpenters. Karen Carpenter, in fact, was not a, didn't sing. They won the year after me as the Car Richard Carpenter Trio. Richard and Karen were brother and sister out of Long Beach, and they had a bass player with them, and they kind of did a sort of an Oscar Peterson type thing. She was the drummer, and quite good. So when they later became huge, and she became the singer, I was like, wow, you're kidding me. Hmm. Who knew? Did you know her back then? I, I, I just, you know, barely, barely. Um, why did I bring that up? What were we talking about? You becoming a leader. Oh, me becoming a leader, right. So I've always said that, uh, I, I was kind of reluctant to be, become a leader, as many of us are, but somebody's got to make the phone calls. It's the, it's the administrative part of being a leader that's a pain in the ass, okay? <laughs> but you do it because you want to have a band and you want to play in a good band. And so uh, you do it, you know, I, 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 I always, w I just wanted to be, be around great players. I didn't have to be the leader, but it's destiny, you know, dictated that I became one. Mm -hmm. And the music that you wrote that was recorded on uh, Tom Scott and L.A. Express and various records after that, that was how many years ago now? 
They all expressed, uh, sort of became coalesced in 1973. So how many years ago? Was it too many years ago? Now we've recreated some of those as big band charts that we're performing here, but uh, you right. were saying the other day that you hadn't played some of these in 40 years. 45, actually. 45. Wow. <laughs> now the That's interesting true. thing is a lot of the students uh, would have been the age that you were when you became the leader of this group and right. you had uh, major record <laughs> opportunities. And right. You put out somewhere over 20 records as a, as a leader, I believe. Well, by now it's about 35, actually, uh -huh. with the all the best of and compilations and all that, add all that in. And I played on uh, over 500 recordings of for other people, as I say, everybody, the Beatles and Barbara Streisand and Michael Jackson and Steely Dan and Aerosmith and, I don't know, many, many more. Mm -hmm. Anybody else stand out? Sure. Um, Steely Dan. Steely See, Dan. That, that record, I did a record called Asia, if you know that record. It's it's so iconic, and the reason it's iconic. I mean, it was a it's their great songs, and uh, and the, the it was just the right time for me to get involved with that group and add that kind of yeah, if I may say I may say kind of an Oliver Nelson kind of vibe in the mm. background there. Uh, but what is amazing about those records that, that is is that and and I and the guy who engineered a guy named Roger Nichols, who I think is not with us anymore. He did an amazing job engineering it, but what's remarkable about the record of uh, all the combination of things that went into it is that's one of the few records that you put on and it sounds, it has kind of a timeless quality. It could have been done, you know, a year ago or 20 years ago or actually it was done in 1976, however many years ago, but I, I you know, there are many great records you put them on and you kind of know. They have, they have a certain time attached to the style or whatever. Steely Dan stuff, it's just timeless. It's mm -hmm. amazing, particularly that record, uh, Asia. It's just remarkable, and I'm very proud to have been a part of it.
I stayed in touch with Walter. Uh, Donald uh, Fagan is not not the most uh, sociable guy on the planet. Let's put it that way. Uh, but Walter is a wonderful guy. He lives in uh, Hawaii and Maui, and uh, I haven't seen him in a while. But there was a time when I visited Hawaii from time to time, and I would look him up, and we go go out to dinner. And he, he was a delightful guy. Well, let's talk about personality because we've gotten to know you here, and you're very approachable. You're very friendly. You're very kind and honest, and and what else can I say about you? <laughs> but no. how, how does that uh, translate to having a career, especially in okay. California? Because you know the, everybody's. Uh, I'm always told that in California, everybody has a studio persona where you're super nice because you want to get work. And well, um, that's. I mean, look, it, you got to be nice in any business if you expect to get work. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just a rule. You know, if you're if you're a jerk, uh, people aren't going to ask you back because you're a drag to be around. But 
I, this particular situation that I faced with, with uh, so many pop people like Joni, like George, who, again, we used to, we used to derisively refer to them as hummers. Because <laughs> they would hum and somebody else would actually write the stuff down. Wow. In fact, Dave Raxon, a uh, uh, quick aside, Dave Raxon, a wonderful composer of Laura, and a great film composer, and a, and a wonderful man. We loved him. Uh, he taught a, 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 uh, a class in film composing at USC for a time. And he explained that uh, there, in, in music, there's a composer, and then there's the arranger. Now, the composer is the guy who actually owns the copyright of the song, uh, or with his publisher, or whatever. But he's the one who receives royalties for, this for the performance of the song. The arranger is the guy who takes the, the song and puts it into a context. That is, is it going to be for an orchestra? Is it going to be for a rock band? Is it going to be for a jazz ensemble or whatever? And for that, he gets a set fee and he doesn't participate in the royalties at all. And some guy raises his hand and said, Mr. Raxon, I have a question. Why would anyone want to be an arranger? <laughs> and uh, and the answer, of course, is because it's fun. <laughs> and you know, the, look, there are guys who have made very fine living, living as as arrangers, and we are will be forever indebted to the likes of Quincy Jones, Thad Jones, Billy May, you know, uh, uh, all these great, great Sammy Nestico, all these guys who have provided such a wealth of great great material for us to learn from Marty Page, Pat Williams, I, I mean, I could go on and on about And you these. know all these guys. I have, I, everyone I mentioned I know. Yeah. I have known, yes. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We're, we're so happy you joined the Jam Session Radio Hour and that you're, we're able to bring some of these interviews to you in this interim period when we can't be bringing you live music. We will be back with more live music. We thank uh, all those involved in this project. Um, in particular, Dave Schroeder for the interview that he's done and for allowing us to go forward with that. Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School at NYU. Um, the interview produced by Joseph Vela, Ed Barada, and Shake Up Productions uh, and made possible by a gift from uh, Selma Geller. We thank Rafael Alvarez for all the great work that he's doing, our sound engineer. We thank Claes Brondahl, the music director, musical director of the jam session. Thank you, WLIW, for, making, for helping make, us, uh, make this possible. And thank all of you for listening and staying with us and uh, for being the, the, the jazz friends that you are. Stay well, be well. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.